Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 319. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2017, Certified American-Grown Flowers. The Certified American-Grown program and label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American-Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit AmericanGrownFlowers.org. As I've mentioned before, whenever I travel, even for pleasure, I'm likely to add three things to my itinerary. First, I visit Slow Flowers members to see their places of business, flower farms, floral studios, and retail floral locations. Next, I team up with one or more of those generous folks to schedule a Slow Flowers meetup. And third, I turn on the digital recorder to interview at least one of those folks for a Slow Flowers podcast episode. Yes, I do travel quite a bit, the non-slowness of which is a bit ironic, as my friends and family have pointed out. But I'm so passionate about getting out on location, so to speak, to capture your stories. Sharing the stories of American flowers and the people who grow and design with them is at the heart of the Slow Flowers mission. Last month, you benefited from my interviews in Montana. This month, it's Connecticut and Virginia. And next month, it will be Massachusetts and Arizona. And then maybe I'll stay home for the holidays. So enough of that. Let me introduce you to Michael Russo, a farmer, florist, and gifted artist who co-owns Trout Lily Farm in Guilford, Connecticut. He and his husband, Raymond Lennox, who works in the healthcare industry when he's not co-farming, purchased Trout Lily about 14 years ago. The farm is located on picturesque Lake Quanapog in North Guilford, where Michael and Raymond grow and sell organic edibles and seasonal cut flowers for the table, weddings, and events. I've been wanting to visit Trout Lily Farm ever since I first met Michael in the fall of 2014 at a floral design workshop that I taught in Rhode Island at the wonderful estate home and garden called Blythewald. My friend Ellen Hoverkamp of My Neighbor's Garden, a botanical artist and photographer who is a previous guest of this podcast, came from her home in New Haven, Connecticut and brought Michael along. I was so enchanted with their long friendship dating back to high school and college as artists and former public school art teachers, both of whom took early retirements to pursue new creative ventures. Trout Lily Farm is indeed Michael's creative outlet. Even though it began as a mostly edible operation, Michael's floral design talents were not to be ignored, and he confided to me that dahlias continue to gobble up more farm space as well as annuals, perennials, and foliages for his wedding floral design work. So I convinced Michael to join Slow Flowers. He truly fits the profile of our members, and I promised to visit the farm on a future trip. That opportunity happened a few weeks ago when I was able to add the New York City, Connecticut stop on my way to teach at Holly Chapel's Flower Stock outside of Washington, D.C. 
Without Ellen's help or the companionship of my dear friend Nancy Finnerty, who accompanied me on the train from New York City to West Haven, I don't think the whirlwind less than 24 hours would have been as effortless or successful. Michael and Raymond hosted us for a Slow Flowers meetup, and about 15 wonderful flower farmers and florists in the area attended the Saturday afternoon gathering. We toured the farm with the guys, including the charming outbuilding, growing fields, studio, potting shed, and the new summer kitchen. Our social hour included my short Slow Flowers update and a chance to hear from everyone about their floral businesses. I loved watching the interactions, the connections, promises of tuber and seed swaps that took place that evening, and more. A true meeting of kindred spirits. Visit DebraPrinzing.com to see photos of our meetup and the beautiful Trout Lily Farm and to find links to all of the farm's social places. Trout Lily has quite a history, so I'll, I'll add that to our show notes too. You may wonder about the name Trout Lily, so let me share that before we turn to the interview. And this is from the website. When the property was purchased in the late fall of 2003, not much was in bloom. The landscape at that time was mostly deer-ravaged patches of poison ivy-covered evergreen trees left over from its Christmas farm days and some meager foundation plantings. But come spring the following year, along the sloping terrace of the property that borders Lake Quantipog were drifts and drifts of bright yellow trout lilies. The trout lily, which is Erythronium americanum, also known as adder's tongue and dog-tooth violet, is a native spring flower. Its foliage resembles the skin of a fish, the blossom's stamens a venomous reptile's tongue, and its corm that of a canine's tooth. Although the description of the plant is rather strange and sounds like an entry from a medieval bestiary, the plant is a cheerful, ephemeral wildflower and a welcome harbinger of spring. It signals the beginning of the growing season here at Trout Lily Farm. That's sweet. Okay, let's get started. And I'd love to introduce you to Michael Russo. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. And I am conducting probably the earliest interview I've ever conducted with a guest. And my guest is Michael Russo. Hi, Michael. Hi, Deborah. Good morning. (laughs) And we are in a car being driven by his husband, Raymond Lennox. Hi, Raymond. Good morning, Deborah. <laughs> Raymond's in the front seat, and where are we? We're in the back seat. <laughs> so we can do the interview. Okay. It's 4.33 a.m., and Michael and Raymond are racing me to the airport, and we, I said, we have to do this podcast interview. So <clears throat> Michael and Raymond own Trout Lily Farm in Guilford, Connecticut, and it, we just had an amazing uh, Slow Flowers meetup last night with all the Connecticut gang, flower farmers and florists, and it was magnificent having that tour. So let's start with a tour of your farm. Uh, Michael, describe what Trout Lily Farm is. Trout Lily Farm is a, I would call it a micro farm. It's a small farm. It's four acres, but we intensively have cultivated about one acre of the property. And it sits on a lake in North Guilford called Lake Quantipog, and it's on a slope, and we've created these um, terraces that we grow on. You're right. It's nothing's flat there, is there? No. It's it was called Hillside Christmas Tree Farm when we purchased the property, so we've changed the terrain somewhat, so it's a little bit easier to farm on. And this property, you said you buy it like 12 or 15 years ago. When when I think 14 years ago, Raymond. That's correct. Okay, and it was it was uh, in need of some renovation then. 
absolutely. Did you think you were going to be a flower farmer when you... Absolutely. As soon as we saw the property um, came up for sale, I could immediately envision the changes we would have to make. And I knew that it was an ideal location for us. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> backing up a little bit, at, at the time that you found the, when you knew about this farm was going on the market and you, because uh, I know you've had your eye on it for a while and you were able to buy it, what, um, what were you doing at the time? I was teaching. Okay. I was an elementary art teacher and teacher of gifted and talented, but I had been, I guess, a moon, I was a moonlight farmer because friends and colleagues would ask me to do the children's weddings, and I did that as so a So moonlight gift. farmer or moonlight moon, florist? Moonlight Both? florist. Oh. That, but you just—how did you get into that? You just happen to have this this sort of art. You're, you're the art friend, so you can do the flowers kind of thing. Yes, and my mom and dad both um, had gardens, so yeah, you know, I I grew up in the gardens more or less, and I just always wanted to um, do that. So I—that's how I started, I guess. So so that um, that kind of side gig became your full time gig a, a while back. Um, Right, I, I took an early retirement because I figured I needed to really make the decision. If I wanted to do this, I had to do it while I was still able to physically, physically, you know, <laughs> do the um, be able to do the work. So I retired early, and things sort of fell into place, and then we started traveling farming. Well, what you're doing there is um, it's such a combination of now event wedding and event business and flower farming and also you're going to become a destination so to talk about how the buildings and the the farm itself kind of influenced that like you've got these all these outbuildings that are both utilitarian and quite beautiful people that, want to come here right they do and they actually want to have weddings here which we've never done up to this point um, we, we've <laughs> It seems it's getting very close because even yesterday, you'll um, remember that a, a bride and groom came to the farm to um, do their first look photographs, and I had I was also I also did their flowers for their wedding. So mm -hmm. things are s sort of changing. So maybe eventually there will be a wedding there. Actually, Raymond and I are the only ones that um, were wedded right on the farm. Um, That's fitting. So. As far as the buildings go, the, the, the building, the original buildings were from the 1920s. So one of the greatest features as a um, flower farmer is a root cellar that was on the property where we, where we, um, we use that building to store our dahlias and start bulbs early in the spring. But there was also a building on the property that was a boathouse because we're situated on the lake. We can, that was the first. Um, That's neat. That was the first uh, transformation we did of an original outbuilding. We turned the boathouse into our farm stand, and that's also my floral studio. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's not like a little shack. It's people walk inside and can shop, I guess, it, during this whatever season you have produce right, during, out there. Right. So we have the produce in the summer, uh, summer, you know, in the growing season, and then we also have the cooler in there where we where I store and also uh, put the finished design work. Mm -hmm. That um, it's so picturesque, and you're on this um, kind of country highway where people are are stopping. So, 
you were, well, Raymond was telling me that like being by the road has its pluses and minuses, but the plus is that everyone knows Trout Lily Farm in this part of the town where, where when people are driving through, they see the sign. Yeah, people drive by you know, hundreds of times and then finally when they they come to the farm and they come through the gate, they're, they're just surprised because it's, um, it's sort of, it's a little bit of a kind of like secret destination, I guess, because as you drive by, you may just glimpse and see the terrace gardens, but once you come in, then people are surprised on how much there actually is within the, um, the um, gardens itself. Right, because some of the gardens are hidden behind the, the farm stand. Correct. So for many seasons, you would sell like tomatoes and other like herbs and like what were you selling in the farm stand? So we would we would start early in the you know spring. One of the first uh, crops was asparagus, purple and green Ooh. asparagus, Ooh. and we have we had a couple of restaurant accounts. We still do, and we supplied to the uh, small local restaurants in Guilford. And that was the first thing. Then lettuces, you know, followed by other, you know, spring crops, radishes, scallions, etc. But to tell you the truth, what's happened over time is with um, being booked for so many weddings and events, it, it sort of changed the complexion of the farm because we decided this season for the first time that we would not open the farm stand for produce. And we're, I would say now, almost exclusively just... Um, weddings and events with our flower with our cut flowers mm -hmm. so um i can see where it, having a farm stand were you having to staff that like was that kind of tying you to the farm raymond um, raymond was the staff and he was <laughs> but raymond how did you fit that into your schedule well just the weekends or days off uh-huh so that was to not be doing your other job correct right yes. so that was tricky and i guess for other people that have their spouses involved in their um farming business it's tricky because he's working full time, so on his days off, he was helping and working for me. Yeah. Um, so that's you know it, it puts a strain on yeah uh, a relationship. It's not the idyllic the idyllic like a Pinterest or Instagram no. life that is painted by some. No, it's the it's the real you know behind the scenes of trying to keep a farm operating and with. With a, you know, with a limited amount of <laughs> staff. Staff. <laughs> so um, you made the conscious decision this year, and has it has there been any blowback from like your loyal veggie customers? Custo customers were a little disappointed, but we let them know, you know, early on in the winter, and we still, it's, we, I guess we have a underground vegetable group because mm. they call and. Um, they meet us at the farm, and then, of course, if when asparagus, for example, is in season or tomatoes, they can come by, and we still sell to a small kind of personal personal. Friends, yeah. Well, our, our old some of our old um, customers, but we've really transitioned the gardens now, and I've been increasing the number of um, spring ephemerals, you know, spring bulbs and flowers and annuals and perennials into our vegetable gardens mm. now. So over the years, um, how did the design work kind of take over your life? I mean, you were growing cut flowers. Uh, were you growing only for your, your clients or had you been selling? You, you sell a little bit to other florists, right? 
Yes, there's a there's a few um, florists, designers that purchase from us, especially during different times of the year. Like right now, autumn, dahlias are mm. at their peak. Your dahlias look beautiful. So, I mean, if for people that are, are doing design work, they know that the, the quality of dahlias, especially, or even zinnias, mm-hmm. to be able to handpick them, you know, day, a couple of days before an event, that kind of material, the, the material is so much more superior than things that have been shipped a, a distance. Sure. Just, even if even if they're fairly local, they just dahlias are very um, delicate. Yeah. So so they love coming through. I I sort of give them the privilege of coming in, selecting what they'd like. They can pick what they'd like, and then they just let me know um, what they've harvested, and and then I invoice them. And are these typically other wedding and event designers, or are they retail florists? Both. Okay. Wow. So, retail florists that have particular um, clients that are looking for something, um, you know, sort of out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and something a little bit more um, local, or if they love a particular flower and we're growing it, then they'll call me and they'll give me a little bit of, you know, heads up time to harvest. And they'll either come by or sometimes I will actually harvest for them and deliver if I know exactly what they'd like. But the other floral designers, some of the real sort of um, high-end designers, they will just come right to the farm. Well, all they have to do is see some of these wacky things you're growing. Like, the, Well, not wacky in a bad way, but kind of not to be found at the wholesaler wacky, like the purple hyacinth. Yeah, hyacinth beans yeah. and, you know, un, un, more unusual things like that, different types of vines. Um and even like you had tons of the catalpa, the uh, is that what it is? The um, the castor bean. What is that called? Well, the, that's that is castor. And, oh, castor bean. Okay. Right. So that's that's a little bit more unusual. So oh, it's gorgeous and it's okay. So the designers, what's nice is they'll come through several you know weeks before they're actually planning an event, and it sort of gets them excited and inspired to think about what they're going to include in their design work, and mm-hmm. then you know they can come and put something in there that's a little bit more unique. They've sort of had a preview with right. you. Right. <clears throat> or you kind of hear what the style of the wedding is and you suggest things probably. That's a lot of time and, and like extra custom service, Michael. Because you're also doing that with your brides, right? Right. I've, I've actually, um, for some brides, I've actually you know grown a row or two of things that they really want to have in their bouquets and they may actually visit the farm you know several months prior to their wedding just to sort of check up on their row to see what's <laughs> really to see what's growing before I design it and they walk down the aisle with me. so you said earlier today that this or maybe yesterday that this has been your busiest wedding um, year ever what do you attribute all this to like it's just word of mouth or it's word it's word of mouth and this this particular season in general there was a group of moms that uh, their daughters were all getting married this year and it was they like, were attending their you know their their friends weddings oh, okay. and then they were they asked who did the flowers and then kind of went. they came to me so it was kind of, I was a little bit under the spotlight with these moms because each wedding I had to make sure everything was perfect because they were like we can't wait Till you do, you know, Jacqueline's wedding, or 
there's the no next, pressure. Right, no pressure. And the girls, the girls that were also getting married and would be brides were attendants, so they were actually, you know, part of the wedding party, mm, carrying so they, carrying bouquets themselves, and then really looking forward to when they were they would be getting their um, personal flowers and their bridal bouquet. So, how are you doing that? Like, what's a typical, or is there a typical um, way that a wedding will work? Like, what are people? What are you doing? Personals and right. So we have ceremony. a con- we have a consultation at the farm, and we just constructed a new building. So now, before it used to take place in the farm stand, but now we have the consultations in a new building that we just finished, which we've coined the name the Summer Kitchen. And so, t- a typical wedding for us is the personal flowers, of course with the attendants and sometimes the bridal parties are enormous and sometimes they're very intimate and, mm-hmm. you know, very small. Mm-hmm. And then there's usually a, you know, the ceremony, which may be in a religious, you know, a, a church, oh, yeah. but generally it seems our clientele's have their ceremonies at the venue site, whether it's at a beach or a rustic farm or, you know, something like that. And then, of course, the reception. Yeah. Which, of course, sometimes you're having to transfer flowers from this the where the vows are taken over to where the party is. And all right. That. That's yeah. a, you know that's a lot of running around. But um, the ideal situation is when everything's taking place at the yeah. at the same location. And are your clients? Um, they're aware that you're a farmer. They're they're aware that you're growing much of what's in their bouquet. Is that why they're coming to you, or is it more for, like for example, are they super uh, focused on local and Connecticut grown, or is it more a combination of that plus they love your aesthetic? I think it's the aesthetic, and you know these are these are brides and um, also you know other same sex couples, couples that couples, are getting yeah. married that. A lot of times, the venue they pick more or less demands, or at least it's appropriate for it to be local, seasonal, um, you know, locally grown material. They don't want really fussy kind of traditional flowers. Mm-hmm. They want things. They want flowers, and they want um, the design work to reflect their more relaxed kind of personalities Mm -hmm. and they also have like a more environmental Mm -hmm. um appreciation appreciation and all and you know i have younger couples i have i have couples that are getting married for the second time but um it's i think what happens is they they more i think they fall in love with the um just the farm itself Mm -hmm. and then they they can really see that the flowers sort of fit their particular style or their... Oh, yeah. I mean, coming to Trout Lily Farm, and now that you have the summer kitchen, it's it's so magnetic. I mean, I would imagine that there, people have this whole little story in their, you know, like, it's part of their story now, like, part of their wedding story that they found you and that they found the farm, and that's going to be really... Well, I think that's what makes it so un- un- unique for them. Um, that it is, I mean, it's part of the whole experience versus maybe going to a traditional florist and going through a book and sort of selecting something right. out of a book. There's this no is, connection then. Right. This they really know, and we, we have a, you know, we have a 
our dog buddy. I mean, sometimes they'll call up to check in on how things are going for the wedding, but they always, you know, they'll ask about Buddy, or if they come back to the farm and Buddy's not there, they want, they, they want sad. to see, they are, they want to see him. He's almost part of the staff. <laughs> He's a good sales, sales, he is, sales he is. Uh, oh, I guess, uh, assistant. So um, the summer kitchen was, is the venue where we had our Connecticut Slow Flowers meetup last night. Thank you both for hosting that. And we had about 15 or 16 people, and a really, there were people who came from, you know, quite a distance uh, from other parts of the state. And it was so nice to have that gathering space. So you've designed it. it well, okay, describe the building. It's pretty large. It's like a small house. Right. It was Raymond, Raymond's the sort of bean counter and numbers guy. So how many, how, what's about the square footage of that, Raymond? Total between the Greek room and the bedroom and bath is um, 1,400 square feet. Yeah, that's a nice size house. So what had it been? A, a it was kennel a, or it something? was a two car garage, and it was also dog kennels, believe it or not. Okay. And it was really, you know, the, the the overhead doors were falling off, and it was pretty decrepit, just like the the boathouse was. We okay. really sort of we really resurrected that before it literally fell down during, you know, a hurricane of oh several gosh. years ago. Yeah. But the, so we the boat we used a, a company which also has the same kind of aesthetic and as. Um, we do, and they they like to you know reclaim things and recycle things as much as possible. So we use local builders and local stone you know, masons. Yes, yeah, stone masons, wow. lumber. We reclaimed wood from old buildings in the area. So anyway, the 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 building has been a godsend because it's air conditioned, it's heated, so it's become not only the summer kitchen but almost the summer studio, where you know we could work in my studio assistant can work oh so you're doing production in there now too yes okay so we put everything on wheels on casters so everything rolls around it's the space changes so it could be a great room space where we could work really well and um and it holds the flowers nicely too because it's the the space is air conditioned right so it's almost if you really had a hot day you could even jack up the ac and it could be just a, a virtual cooler Exactly. So um, you have it set up with a really lovely <clears throat> kitchen that, not commercial, but it's quality where you could have a personal chef uh, do a dinner or something like that. Right. <clears throat> and we're, th- we're thinking it's also a good space, just like holding the workshop, which was more or less um, almost the maiden voyage of, of the, for the farm with the first... Oh, you few- mean the art thing last night? Yeah, yeah. that was... And it worked out well. You know, it's a, it's only for it would only be for small events, and actually we we prefer that. But um, yeah, we could do small subscription kinds of dinners there. I would, you know, I would love to do the, f- the floral design for that. And the space, you know, it's it's situated almost in the garden, so. There's lots of windows, and you have nice views of the gardens, the cutting gardens. Sure, you just step off the deck there, and you're and you're in, literally in the garden. In the garden where all the um, that kind of has the the center aisle, and then the side beds. And right, that's so, it, so pretty. Right, so it's very it's very convenient, but it's nice that you're surrounded by the gardens themselves. Right, and I was thinking about that too, with with um, 
the fact that you're on this narrow, relatively narrow country road. You don't have a giant parking lot, so you have limited parking, and that also kind of fits the scale that you are looking for for doing events. Or that's true. Or would you we're do... trying to. We're also trying to build a relationship with the farm adjacent to us um, because they have a lot of space and they have mostly um, hay meadows and they raise sheep next door as well but um, oh, so like we, a field where you we may work out a relationship where people could park right next door and then just walk through the gardens into the farm and into our outbuildings well, uh, Michael, you're not, this isn't new to you to, for you to do workshops though, right? I mean, you No, we've been doing workshops and we used, and I still do. As a matter of fact, this is really starting to be the beginning of, of doing workshops at other venues and um, other farms. Okay. But I like now that we'll be able to do, you know, we have a workshop coming up where people will come and they'll make their own Thanksgiving centerpieces. Mm. And we, but in the past, you would have had that at the boat. At right, the so I would have had to load up, you know, load up the car, and with no, I would have loaded everything up and then gone and done a workshop, and then we would do small, small little workshops at our place. on site. Okay, right. but now you can. But have this like, gives us a bigger, a bigger space, and you know, being so wonderfully climate controlled now, yeah, it makes it really comfortable. And you can have what, like a dozen people maximum. In a workshop, um, I, or? I think probably yeah, a dozen or maybe up to twenty at the okay. very most. And um, they can—they're—they're they're really going to be coming. You're the destination. Then you're going to become the whole package of the experience of getting to come to Trout Lily, using material that's grown or foraged right to Trout Lily, and then you know probably you'll put some of the you know the herbs from the farm in their little cocktails or you know like you're going to make this right. whole experience so we'll be able to um include you know maybe there'll be little nibbles that we'll have at the workshop that came right out of the vegetable gardens so that's great it's it's very organic you know in terms of the way things are evolving and um we'll uh, see how it goes yeah so we're kind of at the end of the season here in the second starting the second week of october what's your schedule like are you going to be able to kind of Put the garden to bed and have some planning time over the winter. Or do you, I know Christmas is still a kind of a big thing for you? Yeah, Christmas is a is a big season, and our our customers really look forward to that. We do custom wreaths, um, and I hope I'll do so, uh, maybe one or two small make your own wreath mm. with you know foraged materials from from our air, from the property down by the lake and. Because you have a wreath machine, right? Right. So we do that. And we'll do hand-tied wreaths mm. and swags and, and things like that, centerpieces. But um, what we'll do right now, which are, we're a little bit behind schedule because it's been busy, but we have to definitely harvest all um, our heirloom pumpkins and gourds and get that ready for, we'll do probably one weekend very soon for, <laughs> you know, it's coming up. The clock is ticking here, sir. Probably <laughs> You know, harvest tomorrow, and that will be our harvest. We'll do a harvest festival kind of thing we'll, for for like for we, locals. Or just whatever. right, and we'll just do that through social media, and uh, our, it'll be nice to see our customers again. Mm. And then we'll close down for a little bit, transform the transform the farm stand 
into the winter farm stand and we'll bring in a few local craftsmen that do pottery and um, weaving, wonderful, etc. And then we'll, I'll be doing my wreaths and we'll have that open until the winter solstice. Then over the winter, you know, we do take a little break, fortunately. Um, we're not a full, you know, we're not full season kind of florist, so we completely skip the Valentine craziness and all that. Right, then, you're not like doing no, daily deliveries or anything like that. No. <laughs> so we get downtime, you know, we'll order seeds, we'll be trialing new things in the garden. And, you know, then, you know, we'll, oh, I'd say by a few weeks after the killing frost, we'll have all the gardens put to bed. You know, we have to dig up our hundreds of dahlias, store them in the root cellar. Um, so there's still a lot of work. I mean, yeah. anybody who's listening that has, you know, a, a flower farm or has done intensive gardening knows the work never really ends. Right. You're either planning or envisioning something or ordering. And we start things in the greenhouse in the winter. We rent bench space, which is wonderful. We have um, a, a friend that she gives she I rent bench space from her in a nearby town uh, of Durham and we grow out our annuals and some of our perennials in her greenhouse oh, brilliant. over the winter. Oh interesting that okay I feel a little bit better now because we had a slight conversation last night about um, you know this is a, a beautiful farm and you like the kind of perspective of just field grown crops but I was kind of wondering how you got your jump start on spring. Why not right. having a greenhouse? I guess it's also another, I guess it's part of my, you know, vision for the farm and my overall aesthetic. I, I like the, I like the garden look of the farm. Right. And it's composed. It's, it's everything. Right. And I mean, being a visual artist, that's how I sort of, I saw it in my mind's eye. So the more in the more, um, commercial production part fortunately takes is taking place at this satellite farm where they've given me the opportunity to be able to grow things so I grow in their greenhouses and they have you know they have a number of greenhouses so that makes it very it's brilliant is great that, for me and um are you growing lisianthus I saw some in the bouquet and I wasn't sure where it I, came from I did grow I grew two seasons I grew lisianthus but because we don't have um, low or high tunnels, which I think that's where it grows the best, right. to tell you the truth, um, we grew it, and it's one of those, um, you cut it, and then you just sort of wait, and you get out there, and you're, like, cheering it on, but it, it doesn't it doesn't ever, at least for us, it never recovered. Uh, so we we grew it for two seasons, but now we have stopped uh, growing that. And You're just letting someone else who can do it better grow it and exactly buy it locally and and we do that a lot you know because we're small um we can't grow everything or we can't grow enough of everything mm. depending like if we had if we had maybe two or three events on a weekend then that's a high demand for the gardens yeah. so what we do is we have other of cut you know other flower farmer friends of ours and um from westport and from Brantford and other surrounding you know close within our um like within 25 miles or something right yeah and we'll you know tell them what we need and you know sometimes it's a little bit of a frantic um (laughs) trying to you know get enough of something (laughs) to fit a palette or something correct yeah so we'll run around but you know we always have a plan b and a plan c so (laughs) 
we still keep it local and you know fortunately we've been able to um, keep all of our brides and clients happy yeah yeah well I like the way you described it actually last night when you were giving the tour you were talking about these satellite farms and at first I wasn't sure if you meant that was your property that you were uh, growing like on other acreage but it it became apparent to me that these are people that you rely on who supply you and like augment what you you can't obtain yourself or grow yourself. Right, and my studio assistant, who also has a you know full time job, and then she helps me out in the studio for big events. What we do is over the winter we get together over our over our catalogs and we order and we make sure we're not. It's, you know sometimes we think about. Like, for example, say we were going to grow a particular color of dahlia. So we'll, um, we'll make sure that she has enough in her gardens, and that way we can supplement each other. Each other, And then sometimes she may be growing something uh, that I am not growing at our farm. And um, that's the way we just sort of keep, the, keep a lot of variety. But we only have so much growing space yeah. ourselves. Yeah. How many dahlias are you growing right now? That's a number thing for Raymond in the front Raymond, seat. did you say 400? Uh, 250. Oh, 250. Okay. 250. It's so beautiful. Truth, that's, that, that, it is beautiful. But you know what? 250 is not even enough. Um, that's 250 plants, so you're maybe right. getting like, oh, that, oh, well over 1,000 blooms. Right. The only thing is, you know, because I have to have a full, grow a full spectrum of colors for, you yeah. know, for a, an event or a right. wedding, yeah. That sometimes, you know, say you need a, you know, a real gorgeous uh, Merlot-colored dahlia right. that, that's part of the palette. So sometimes there, you know, the, the 12 of that color that I have maybe <laughs> just, you know, aren't enough. <laughs> so that's when Janet's Right, that's when, is... that's when I get on the phone and start making calls. Cool. Well, I love the way your business has evolved and, you know, not to uh, dismiss the art of vegetable growing because that's really rewarding and meets a lot of demand too, but there's there are way more people growing vegetables than there are flowers and you've become this niche business that it just seems like it's really coming together uh, with everything you love anyway, you know. And, and in our neck of the woods, there is a higher competition with vegetable growers and farmers markets and there's there really are very few flower farms um in our area okay. i mean there's a few but that's you're right what do you call your area guilford is it like coastal connecticut or we call it we call it the connecticut shoreline okay um sure we're fortunate also in the little hamlet of north guilford that we live in that there's other um there are other commercial growers that grow, you know, bedding plants too, which we can get bedding plants also to put into the cutting gardens that are literally right across the other side of the lake. Mm. So we are in a very agrarian area, mm. which is which is wonderful. <clears throat> well, um, what before we wrap up, I want to um, throw it to you and ask anything that I didn't bring up that you want to share with people. We're going to share photos. Um, links uh, to all your social places and websites and um, people can track you down and follow Trout Lily Farm. Um, and we, we started to do Instagram posts. 
which people are enjoying. Yes. Thanks to your young farm uh, yeah, assistant. Our, our heavy lifter, Alex, <laughs> who really, that's, it's Alex, Janet, who's the studio assistant, and Raymond and I, and Buddy helps out occasionally, I guess. Really? That's it? Yeah, that's it. And Raymond was saying there's um, somebody who comes for Dahlia uh, deadheading therapy or something, but that's like not a real employee, right? No, but you know what? We could follow, We have to say that Barbara was the first person who ever actually showed up because mm -hmm. we get people come through and, of course, they, they think, oh, this is just such a fantasy and such a bucolic lifestyle and it must be so wonderful and you get to create beauty every day, which there's... Sure. Absolutely. But it's also a lot of hard work and there's a lot of sweat equity. But so people volunteer all the time. If you ever need somebody to come and weed, but they never materialize. But this one person, Barbara, um, actually, she's been coming regularly and she's been, you know, a, a lot of help on the farm. And she's actually, she came and she harvested horseradish. We have jars of horseradish that she's made. So... You know, we may actually do we may actually do more of that. We may actually invite more people to mm, come. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sure she's gaining some kind of you know emotional uh, joy out of it and physical joy. And then you're sending her home with flowers, probably. Yes, and she's also um, learning a lot more about you know the sort of behind the rows of <laughs> behind the rows of um, the, what's how do you actually do grow flowers right. and what they're cultural requirements are. The truth of it. Yeah, the real, the uh, real nitty gritty of um, all that bucolic lifestyle. Well, thank you so much for hosting me and for put, letting me sleep in that amazing summer kitchen. That was just, we didn't get enough sleep last night, but that was just so restful to be in Well, I'm glad it worked out space. and I'm so glad you came. And even though it, we had a, birth, a birthday party that day for a client, two weddings, and the a harvest in a harvest dinner and a couple deliveries right a couple yeah. of deliveries and one of the brides left her personal flowers after the at the farm so i had to dash out and take <laughs> take a down at a beach but um it all worked out and i was really glad and i think everybody had a really good time it was wonderful i will be back i promise okay thanks Deborah. thank you Thanks so much for joining us today. I continue to be inspired by the people I meet and get to interview, and I hope you're equally inspired. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 245,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you to each one of you for downloading, listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. If you value the content you receive each week, I invite you to show your thanks and support the Slow Flowers podcast with a donation. The button can be found on our homepage in the right column. Your contributions will help make it possible to transcribe future episodes of the podcast. And thank you to our family of sponsors, Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of 50 family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing high-quality American-grown peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission 
is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at lfgardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com. The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at kinetictreefitness.com. Thank you.